This is the Negotiate X podcast, show number 19. And it was so comforting, you know, and, and, and that comfort, I think really when you talk to somebody, that comfort gets transferred to that person you're talking to, too. They realize that you're all not, you're not a nervous wreck. You're not, you know, all crazy and kind of like all worried about what's going to happen. You're like relaxed. And, you know, this guy's got a gun. He's talking about killing people. And you're just like totally relaxed. That's a little addicting. Sometimes people, you know, people pick up on it's contagious. You know, they, they pick up on it and they start relaxing themselves. And, and then that's when they start relaxing their guards and they start spitting out stuff they normally wouldn't do. And you hear that information and that's where you grab your hooks. That's where you get your info. You're listening to Negotiate X Radio, helping you elevate your influence through purposeful negotiations. If you're here looking to learn about how to become a better negotiator in both business and life, then you're in the right place. Stay tuned and be sure to join the others who have benefited from NegotiateX.com, your home for negotiations training and consulting online. Welcome to the Negotiate X podcast. My name is Nolan Martin. I'm the co-host and co-founder of Negotiate X. My good friend and co-founder is also with me, but Aaron, we also have another uh, guest on on today, following we, up from Luke of, uh, from last week. So do you want to introduce Mike? Yeah, I, I will. And again, uh, we're, we're grateful to have somebody else on to talk, so it's not just you and me. Um, <laughs> Hey, for our listeners, you know, one of the things I have loved about this field of negotiation is the, the number of different people I've met along the way who, who are in the field working in, you know, uh, you know, in, in parallel and, and side by side organizations and learning from them. And about a decade ago, I can't believe it's been that long, Mike, I had the opportunity to get connected I don't even remember how we got connected. So maybe, maybe Mike, one of the first things you told me that, but to, uh, at the time, uh, officer Mike Baker of the LAPD SWAT crisis negotiation team, uh, where he spent 29 years, um, serving, uh, prior to that, Mike, uh, Baker had been, uh, an army airborne ranger, uh, serving in, in Alaska, uh, in an Arctic ranger company. He's did some time as a facilitator at uh, BU's uh, Master of Criminal Justice program, and now as a trainer with American Airlines. And it, and it was just, I could tell we were um, kind of cut from similar cloth years ago when we met. Uh, Mike Mike hosted some West Point cadets for us, uh, took them through some of the, the ins and outs and drills out in LA of, of his work there. Uh, he came out to West Point a couple times as a, as a guest speaker working with our classes. And so, Mike, it's just a pleasure and honor to welcome you to this, uh, to our program. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, well, you're welcome. It's a pleasure to be here. I, I, I can't remember who you are. I'm just kidding. <laughs> 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 I don't know how old I really am. It's like a decade ago. I can't believe that either. And as far as being cut from the same cloth, I think mine might be more from like a, a shroud or something that maybe was around the, <laughs> the body of Christ or something. And yours might be something a little more, you know, probably uh, modern. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, same yeah. Pleasure to be here. Pleasure to be here. Thanks. Yeah, thanks for saying that. Hey, listen, uh, for our listeners, tell us a little bit about what crisis negotiation uh, is. Crisis negotiation. <laughs> well, I guess I guess first off, I think it's a, it's a little different than um, negotiating in business. I think um, I, I'd like to think that uh, I, I 
I think the major difference, although there are a lot of a, a lot of uh, you know similarities between the type of negotiation you do in both both situations, but I think what crisis negotiation crisis negotiation, which is a powerful tool, I think, in any kind of negotiation, is is the ability to establish a relationship with somebody you're talking and trust with someone, uh, which is so so important, I think, and 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 valuable in in uh, resolving any kind of uh, crisis that's going on. So. Um, I think crisis negotiating is, is, is just like any kind of negotiation, absent the fact that you, you are limited a lot of times as far as the amount of time that you have to get the job done, which is, which is a, a, could be a huge problem. How did you get, how'd you get into this field in the, in the first place? I, I will say, let's see, I'm gonna try, I try to keep things short, but you know how that goes. You've been with me before. Um, well, let's, let's suffice to say that when you, when we went when we, when, when you applied for the uh, SWAT team with the Los Angeles Police Department and went through uh, tryouts, if you were admitted into the department uh, as a SWAT operator, um, one of the classes that you had to do was eight hours of uh, what they call CN2, crisis negotiation training. Everybody is required to do that on the unit. Um, our, our members of our unit are, although we uh, serve in different cadres within the unit. For example, I was a sniper. I was also an assaulter. I was an EMT. I was a negotiator. I was also a climber. Those are different cadres within the department, within the, the unit itself. Uh, some units have exclusive people that are just snipers. They're SWAT snipers and that's it. We did it all. But some of the cadres you weren't allowed to get into unless you showed that you had some kind of potential there and were good at what you did. Uh, crisis negotiating was one of them. Um, I, I took the eight hour class because we all had to go through eight hours of training. Uh, after I finished it, I said, there's no way in the world I ever want to do that. And, and I think the lieutenant of the SWAT team said something along the lines is, don't worry, I would never ask you to be part of this unit. I think he didn't see anything, <laughs> any potential. And at the time, I had no interest in it. I was a young cop. I went on the SWAT team for one thing, probably the same thing I wanted to be a ranger for. I wanted to go blow things up and go. Uh, I, I felt there was only one way to resolve you know, um, crime and problems in the city and crisis in the city is that that was through brute force. And I wanted to be part of that. And I only learned later on in my career that, yeah, that that is a method that can be used. But I think it's probably one of the least constructive. Uh, and I found out one of the most constructive was was negotiating. Um, I found that out when I was forced into a negotiation position um, as a sniper, believe it or not. I was a sniper on a unit. And I don't know how much of the story you want me to tell. I, I'm telling Actually, I'm referencing that the first time that ever was exposed to negotiation period in, in an actual live situation, and 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 that was the situation with the uh, the, the 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 individual who was uh, was suicidal. He had a gun to his head on the on, uh, between a couple houses in the north section of uh, Los Angeles. Uh, earlier in the day, he had uh, murdered his wife, who was actually sitting alongside their baby girl inside her vehicle. Uh, he had shot and killed her numerous times, shot her. But anyway, so uh, that they had patrol had located him later on in the day. And he was sitting between a few, uh, uh, I, I believe there are apartments on a, on a, on a grassy hillside uh, in, in the northeast section of Los Angeles with a gun to his head. <clears throat> they had him surrounded and SWAT was called out to that situation because it was considered a barricade. And, and they were unable to resolve it. When I got up there, I was immediately deployed to go up on up behind or in the in the area of a, a black and white vehicle where one of the patrol officers, a young kid who was fairly new on the job, was actually actively negotiating with this gentleman. And I was just supposed to be protecting him as well as protecting the advancing SWAT officers who were at, who were at the time taking up positions and relieving uh, the inner perimeter 
of containment on this individual, so he couldn't get so he couldn't get outside that area with that gun uh, and do any more damage. Um, so I was covering them as well as covering this 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 young uh, cop who was trying to negotiate with the guy. It was obvious to me, even though I wasn't experienced as a negotiator, that he was having trouble. And I and I understand that it's no no fault of his. They're not we're not trained. I know most police officers aren't trained trained in negotiation or talking to people like that. And he was saying a lot of the wrong things, I guess you'd say, you know. And um, our lieutenant got wind of that, radioed me in my headset, and told me that I need to take over negotiations. You need to relieve this kid, and they'll bring up another sniper guy to, to cover me. So at that point, I took over negotiations with this gentleman. It was the first time I'd ever negotiated with anyone. And the same lieutenant that told me I would never negotiate put me in that position. So I, I you know, <laughs> so I, I think, you know, over the couple of years that I'd been serving under him, he got an idea that maybe I was kind of good at what I did. I don't know. Long negotiations. I would say that it probably took, you know, close to, I, I, I can't remember, but it was hours and hours out there. I would say three, four hours at least that we were out there negotiating with this person. End result, without talking about everything that had in between, unless you have questions about it, is that he peacefully uh, gave up, put the gun down, and, and came down, and, and I received him, uh, and others, he came right to me and, and gave up. We handcuffed him and, and took him to jail. You know, and the end result of that was there, there, there were no uh, civil lawsuits, no, lit, no litigations against us. In fact, his parents came up and thanked me, which was, you know, thanked me for taking their son to jail. I mean, it was obvious he was going to jail for a long time, possibly life. Uh, during the process of negotiating, he admitted, you know, out loud that he had killed his wife. It wasn't like it was something that they had to investigate later or, or get a confession out of him. He did it, you know, uh, right out there in front of the whole world. So um, he was going to jail and he knew it. But I guess the main thing I did in that whole negotiation process was to reassure him that there is a chance that if he lived, he might be able to accomplish some of the things that he wanted to accomplish and he was frustrated with and thought he never would be able to do. And um, yeah. so that, that, that happened through, I think, um, something that you and I both know as active listening, I think more than anything. Asking a lot of questions, listening to what he's saying and hearing what he's saying at the same time and, and figuring out how we can use that information to maybe you know resolve the situation. So it was a, a learning experience on the job thing. It was a success. I can't say all of mine were successes. That one was, and it definitely, uh, I, I would say, probably uh, put fire underneath my uh, desire to want to do more of that. I mean, we actually, you know, I've been in shootings before and resolved situations that way because they had to be done that way. It was a tactical resolution and it had to be done that way. But I got a better feeling solving something this way than I did ever, you know, doing something tactically, which I thought meant something to me. What you just talked about with active listening and and kind of hearing their concerns, I remember you referring to that in the past as a as a hook and the power of being able to find that hook. Did that become a common practice for you? And how would you define that for our listeners? This idea of finding a hook with somebody that you're, uh, you know, in the midst of a you know negotiation with. I don't even know if this is a good analogy or not, but it's like finding that treasure map that actually leads to a treasure. It's like, you know, you're looking all over, digging holes all over the place and not finding anything. And all of a sudden laying right there is a, is a map that shows you exactly where, where the treasure is. And that's kind of like what it is. When you find that hook, then it's like, you got them, you got them. You, you've now got control of the situation. And I'm not, you know, and it would be a great to find that early in the process, but usually you don't find that until you establish some type of relationship with somebody and someone trusts you enough to start talking to you and telling you, giving you information about them, themselves that you can 
think about and ask yourself why when you hear some of the responses that he gives to some of your questions. So Mike, you, you know, you're just telling us about the patience it takes to build a relationship, the asking these questions to find that hook. I love the analogy uh, of finding the treasure map. I think that is just relevant in a number of contexts. So the question I have is really about many of our listeners uh, are never going to be faced kind of with the situation you were faced that day. Someone who had just, you know, committed murder. And, and I have to imagine there's a little bit of emotional, you know, for you to connect with them, that part of you. How and how did you throughout your career kind of manage this piece of saying, I need to build a relationship with this person to accomplish this? But boy, this is this is somebody who I don't approve of or, or, or don't like a whole lot or something like that. Yeah, uh, it, it's interesting because I, I would say not only generally across the board in negotiations, whether I was doing crisis intervention on a suicide line or I'm doing it out there, I have spoken with a lot of people that I did not agree with what got, you know, with their actions and what got them into the situations they got into. I, I don't know how I do this error because I don't consciously do it, but I end up coming across as being someone who understands why they did what they did and doesn't, doesn't for some reason, get my emotions or my feelings about what they did involved in the negotiations whatsoever. I, I think a lot of people that like for in the criminal element, when you're negotiate, negotiating with them, deep down inside, a lot of them realize that what they did was wrong. They know what they did was wrong. It's just that they need somebody to listen to them and to understand their anger or their reasons for why they did what they did. Not to agree with their, their method of taking care of that. You know, I don't do that and I've never done that. And I think the minute that you start doing that is the minute that you lose all credibility because they're not stupid. They know that you're, as a police officer, as a negotiator, as a, someone who wants to you know, bring peace to a situation, you're not going to agree with somebody murdering somebody. You're not going to agree with that. But you do understand what it is to be angry. You know, you, we've all been angry at some point in our life, maybe not to the point where they want to kill somebody or have actually killed people, but, but you understand anger and you understand someone who could be very, very angry in this particular guy's uh, situation. Uh, he believed that his wife was cheating on him with somebody at work. And maybe she was, maybe she wasn't. I have no idea, but I can understand an anger but again, letting him know that, letting him know that you do understand why he was angry, that you don't necessarily agree with why he did what he did, that his ways of resolving that, you know, that situation, he doesn't either. Because obviously he would rather not be in the situation he's in right now. You know, if he was smart and had control of his emotions, he might sit down and talk to his wife and say, hey, what's going on? And can we solve this or we need, do we need to break up? Or do we need to end this marriage or what? But, but obviously he didn't do that. He let his emotions take over and he realizes he was wrong. People sometimes just want to be heard. And at that particular point in their life, they can't find anybody to talk to that's going to agree with them or listen to them. At least you listen to them. You don't agree with them, but you understand why they acted the way they did. And I think in all the situations where I talk to people um, that committed crimes or engage in activities that, that I don't agree with, whether, whether I'm talking to a suicidal person that's a child molester, which is, you know, like the last person in the world that I want to hang out with and have a drink, but they're going to kill themselves. They called in and I got to talk to them, yeah. whether it's that kind of person or not, you have to at least listen to them because they have nobody to listen to. That's your job as a negotiator is, is not to make decisions, whether people are bad or good and to, um, uh, and to tell them that because they know that what they're doing is wrong. They all know what they're doing is wrong. 
unless they're extremely mentally ill and they just don't, they don't reason or they're under the influence of drugs, which can be a problem. But for the most part, I think that having someone to listen to because they can't, they've found somebody to listen to, having them look at you and look at you as someone who, who sincerely wants to listen to them, who cares about their well-being and also values at least their opinions on things so that you can establish trust. And um, you're not going to do that if you're holding back or scolding people all the time you're talking to them. So you, you don't lie to them because that's the worst thing you can do because once you lie to somebody, you, if you had any trust built at all, you're never going to get it back. Be honest with them, but listen to them and, and hear their story. I think that's what a lot of them just want to just have happen. What a great like, number of things there for our listeners. I mean, to, to understand without agreement, to suspend judgment, right? To be able to, to, be able to listen critically, really li- listen and probably ask some good questions, uh, and just to give them somebody who's heard, I, those, I think those concepts probably apply in other aspects too. You know, so you've talked a little bit, I mean, as you, so beyond the initial eight hours of training, I would have to assume that over, over the course, there was additional training that occurred. Can you tell us a little bit? I mean, how, how does someone get skilled, more skilled, and how did you kind of get more skilled in this field as you pursued the path? I had, we, we had a practice, uh, our, our, our crisis negotiating team on, uh, on LAPD SWAT had a practice of volunteering supposedly once a month to go over to the suicide lines and work. I did that one time and went over there and went, oh, you know, I kind of like this. It was practice talking to people in crisis, maybe a different crisis than what I was doing as a SWAT team member, but it's still crisis. It allowed me exposure to more people in crisis in different situations that I've never been involved in before. And, and the more I did it, I ended up volunteering and doing it, um, first going through their training, their civilian training there uh, for people that wanted to be crisis line operators. After going through that training, I decided to put myself on a shift once a week. So I arranged my days off so I would go one day a week over there you know, on my own and, and volunteer. And I ended up doing you know, hours and hours of things. And the SWAT team basically fell behind and, and really didn't keep up on sending people over there anymore. They weren't really doing it. Uh, most people didn't like to do it. I was gaining more and more knowledge. I got to the point where I remember the first time I picked up a phone as a SWAT team uh, negotiator, um, they said, call in. We'd interrupt the line, establish another line with a throw phone and allow them to only receive calls from us. They couldn't get outside calls. This is before cellular actually happened. And then when cellular happened, we had to shut down cellulars. But, but at the time, we would cut their lines and establish a new line just between us so that there would be no outside communication. The only communication would be between the negotiator and the person inside the home that was barricaded. And I remember the first time they gave me the number and they said, call in. Let's, let's talk to this person. Let's see if we can get them out. And I remember dialing that phone up and sitting there on the phone thinking to myself, don't pick it up. Please don't pick it up. I didn't want, I didn't want, because I had no idea what I was going to say to somebody when they picked it up. I was scared to death, honest to God. And that training over at the crisis negotiating uh, suicide prevention uh, network over there, D.D. Hirsch in, in Los Angeles, the numerous times that I'd gone over there, this, the, the shifts that I worked over there got me to the point where I felt like there was nothing that anybody was gonna, ever going to tell me on the phone whether it was in a crisis or hostage negotiation or whether it was in a suicidal situation that I'd never heard before. And I was, I was hoping just like I did when I served tactically on the unit, whenever I was in that capacity, that you gave me the worst one, the ugliest one. That's what I wanted. I wanted the challenge because I, I just was, I, that, that was something about doing that, that I just, I, I, I lived on. I, I breathed 
thrived on. So I felt like I'd heard so many different stories, so many different things, and I've talked to so many different people that I wasn't going to be surprised by anybody. And I wanted people to pick up. I wanted, I wanted to pass the phone around with everybody in the house. I wanted to talk to all of them. I, I would say when we used to talk about toolbox and putting more tools in the toolbox other than a hammer, otherwise you're treating everything like a nail kind of thing. That's the way it was with me. It was like I was I was I was just putting more and more tools in the toolbox. And immediately I went I went to work. I could fix electrical things, plumbing things, anything. I had tools to fix everything in that toolbox, and it was so comforting, you know. And and, and that comfort, I think, really, when you talk to somebody, that comfort gets transferred to that person you're talking to too. They realize that you're all not, you're not a nervous wreck. You're not, you know, all crazy and kind of like all worried about what's going to happen. You're like relaxed. And, you know, this guy's got a gun. He's talking about killing people. And you're just like totally relaxed. That's a little addicting. Sometimes people, you know, people pick up and it's contagious. You know, they, they pick up on it and they start relaxing themselves. And, and then that's when they start relaxing their guards and they start spitting out stuff they normally wouldn't do. And you hear that information and that's where you grab your hooks. That's where you get your info. You establish that relationship with people. They're comfortable talking with you. And um, boy, those are, that's a wealth of information. You open up the, you know, the, the faucets and it all comes pouring out. And then you've got all this stuff to play with, uh, all, the, all these tools and all these things to bend and twist people the way you want to do it. The only way you get good at negotiating is to do more negotiating. You can read every book in the world and it might help you through a particular incident every once in a while. But the way you get good at it is to actually do it. Yeah, that that listen listen to our podcast uh, so, because, <laughs> because we have people like you on. But I agree, I, you got to practice it, and and then everything you're talking about building your your toolkit and and the different skills and and then being really well prepared, incredibly valuable. Hey, this is Nolan. I'm going to jump in right here. Aram and I decided to make this a two-part series instead of trimming down the episodes for it to fit our traditional, you know, 20, 25-minute format. So you're going to have to listen to next week's show for our discussion with Mike as we wrap it up. So if you could please do us a favor and share this with one of your friends who would benefit from learning more about becoming a better, more purposeful negotiator, we would really appreciate it. And then we'll see you in the next episode. Thank you for listening to Negotiate X Radio, helping you elevate your influence through purposeful negotiations. If you're here looking to learn about how to become a better negotiator in both business and life, then you're in the right place. Be sure to join the others who have benefited from NegotiateX.com, your home for negotiations training and consulting online.